in this second installment of the uh, Ten Commandments from the fall into sin to Sinai, kind of traced a lot of uh, passages the first hour that had to do with evidence that indicates there was some moral standard that's already in place that people were either uh, approved, their conduct was either approved or disapproved of based on something that already existed, based on something that already existed. Now, a question comes up, uh, if this law of nature, if this law of creation, if this work of the law written on the heart of Adam and Eve is reflective of the Ten Commandments, did they violate the Ten Commandments prior to their uh, eating the fruit, while eating the fruit, after eating the fruit? Now, how would, how would we address that? Now, I think a good case can be made that Adam and Eve violated many, if not all, of the Ten Commandments in the garden when they sinned. You remember in the book of James, there's a text there in James chapter 2, I think, if you will break one of the commandments, you functionally, you've break, broken the whole thing, broken uh, the entire moral law of God. Now, you remember in the garden, the, the prohibition of eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they ate, but as we were analyzing this the end of their sin, that is, the, the eating of it itself and the consequences that came upon them. There's a lot of other stuff going on there. Eve's apparently by herself. Adam let Eve be seduced by the devil. Why would he do that? He's busy being a lousy husband. It looked like it. Uh, we know that the prohibition of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was the threat for violating that that law of God, then death would come. That doesn't mean there couldn't have sinned prior to that. Uh, I think there was sin. Eve was seduced. She was deceived. That's the language Paul uses looking back on Eve's fall into sin. And that happened prior to her eating the fruit and Adam eating the fruit. So there's a lot going on with that. Um, they snatched at deity, one old writer said. Remember? The serpent told Eve, hey, God knows that the day you eat from it, you're going to become like him. So when the old writer from the 17th century says, they snatched at deity. That's what he means by that. The devil had seduced them to thinking they could get some sort of extra creational betterment to their created state by eating something that had infused in it some sort of power to catapult them into a, a, a godlike state. The only deity, if they snatched at deity, and they did, that they could, that could be snatched at or snatched was God, because you have God and not God. So they're violating the first commandment. Uh, they're violating, I think, the second commandment, third commandment, at least by this snatching at deity. There were no rivals in the mind of man yet until this time of the fall into sin. Now, are there rivals in our minds and hearts all the time? You know, we got competing thoughts going on. Sometimes we have more or less holy or right or righteous thoughts, and other times... Sometimes in the midst of having otherwise holy and righteous thoughts, we have not so wholesome thoughts at the same time. But for them, before they sinned, um, 
There was no rivals in their minds. But they snatched at deity. They took the bait the devil offered them. She took the fruit and ate, and then she took and gave it to him, to Adam, and he ate. So there's at least a violation, I think, of the first three commandments there. But what about the other commands? There's this man named Edward Fisher from the 17th century. Edward Edward Fisher was not a trained theologian, as far as I know. He was a layman, and he wrote a book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Is that the title, Andrew? Andrew, have you read it? Of course you have. We're not impressed. I read it like 20-something years ago. Ha! The Marrow of Modern Divinity. And what he does there... What he does of the various things, it's kind of a, a law gospel kind of thing. And he grounds the law by virtue of God's act of creating Adam and Eve in his image in the divine act of creation. He sees original righteousness as a gift uh, that Adam and Eve had prior to their fall into sin. The law is written on their hearts. They have a conscience, you know, all that stuff. And then he has this section where he tries to argue for the violation of the entire Decalogue by Adam, all ten of the Ten Commandments. Now, if that's true, that would be fascinating. Here's what he says. He chose himself another god when he followed the devil. It's a violation of the first commandment. I'd say, yeah. He idolized and deified his own belly. As the apostles' phrase is, he made his belly his god. (laughs) So he made an idol. What was it? His belly. Uh, that's Philippians 3. They make their bellies is their God. They live for themselves and their own personal pleasures. Uh, he put himself in the place of God. So there's another violation there, the second commandment. He took the name of God in vain when he believed him not. Yeah. From any tree of the, in the midst of the garden you may eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. In the day that thou shalt eatest of it, thou shalt surely die. I'm not sure why the King James is coming out of my head there. It has something to do with my age, maybe. But here he goes. He, he believed God not. He didn't believe God's word. He didn't treat God's word revealed to him on top of his created status through the prohibition, Genesis 2:15, 16, and 17. He didn't treat it... Um, or he did treat it in a glib, in a disrespectful manner. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The name of God. His names, his titles, his attributes, his word, his ordinances. Okay, he didn't treat the word of God holy. How about the fourth one? Here's what Edward uh, Fisher says. He kept not the rest and estate wherein God had set him. In other words, he did work God forbade him from doing. He, he ate. God gave him a calendar. God gave him a calling. God forbade him from doing certain things, from working certain works. This was one of them. He kept not the rest and estate wherein God had set him. Fifth, he dishonored his father who was in heaven, and therefore his days were not prolonged in that land which the Lord his God had given him. I'm, I'm laughing because it's so funny. He's using the rest of the Bible to help interpret what went on with the first sin. 
And he said, well, our Father who art in heaven, God was the father of a created son. Adam was the first created son of God. So his father, his creator, was God the Father. He did not honor his father who was in heaven. And therefore, he kicked him out of the garden. His days were not prolonged in that land which the Lord his God had given him. Now that echoes the fifth commandment. Um, on your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you, that your days may be long in the land. Sixth, he massacred himself and all his posterity. In Adam all die. Who was the first massacrer? Adam. He was a murderer. Killed himself and the rest of us. In eyes and mind, he committed spiritual fornication. The seventh commandment. Did he commit uh, physical fornication or adultery? No. But you know how, if you read the prophets, there's some tough language in there about Israel being a spiritual fornicators because they're idolaters. So he says here he violated the seventh commandment. In eyes and mind, he committed spiritual fornication. Eighth, he stole like Achan that which God had set aside not to be meddled with. And this, his stealth, is that which troubles all Israel, even the whole world. He stole. Thou shalt not steal. That's off limits. You're not even, I, I think to touch it is a wise thing. Don't even touch it kind of thing. They touched it. They took something that was forbidden from, it wasn't their property. It was God's. And he said, don't. So they stole. Uh, ninth, he bare witness against God when he believed the witness of the devil before him. Thou shalt not bear false witness. God is envious. God is lying, isn't he? God is holding something back from us. Thou shalt not bear false witness. He coveted an evil covetous like Amnon, which cost him his life and all his progeny. He coveted. Um, covetousness, which is idolatry. He committed idolatry. He coveted. He bore false witness. He stole. He committed spiritual fornication. He killed himself and his posterity through sin and disobedience. He dishonored his heavenly father and he was kicked out of the land instead of living a long time there. He was, lived a short time there. He kept not the rest and work that God gave him to do. He gave, did work forbidden of him to do. He also did not keep the name of the Lord his God in vain. He didn't believe his word. He made his, God, his belly his own God and chose the creature instead of the creator. He committed idolatry. And um, he chose himself, another God than the true God, by putting himself in the place of God and determining what he could and couldn't do on his own, ter on his own merit. Okay, I know God said this, but now I'm going to... You sit down, God. I'm going to teach you something about being a creature in the image of God. I'm going to do what I think is right. I'm going to become my own God. So he de-god, ungodded God, dethroned God, and set himself up as God. I think something like that, I think the, the gist of it is right. Adam did not love God or his fellow man at his fall into sin. And if we... we uh, you know, allow the rest of Scripture to help us. If the love commands comprehend the commands of the Decalogue, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, comprehends the first four, 
honor your father and mother all the way to thou shalt not covet. The last six, love your neighbor as yourself. If the love commands contain within them the commands of the Decalogue, then Adam clearly broke the whole law at his fall. Now all this taken together shows that the basic principles of the Ten Commandments were known before Sinai. I quoted that this morning. That's that contemporary Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith guy uh, in his book. The basic principles of the Decalogue were known before Sinai. He says this as well. The Bible presents the laws of the Decalogue as antecedent to it. You know what that means? If the Decalogue is revealed over here in Exodus 20, the Bible presents the individual commands antecedent to it, prior to it. We tried to do that, look at that this morning. Now, before drawing a conclusion, it's important to realize that the theological, the ethical, and the revelational foundation of the pre Sinai narrative is creation. In the image of God, the law written on the heart, the gift of original righteousness, and all that. It's creation. Creation by God, then, implies ethical absolutes for man, and the texts that we look at this morning assume that very clearly and in many places. So all I was trying to do is trying to flesh out whatever, what's already, I think, your intuition. When you read the early chapters of Genesis, there's just an intuition in us to you read it through the grid of the Ten Commandments. Aha, 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 aha. We're already doing that. And I tried, to, tried to, to help you along in that way. But the basis, the ground for those prohibitions, for those Uh, frowning sections on somebody's actions or approving sections of somebody's actions is the moral law or the creational law, is creation itself. We we weren't reading Jews under the Mosaic Covenant. That's not what we were reading. The Mosaic Covenant isn't enacted uh, uh, by blood until Exodus chapter 24. But these Abrahamites and the pre-Abrahamites There was obviously some sort of code that they were under. We can't call it the Mosaic Covenant because that comes later. Can we say that, well, maybe in the Mosaic Covenant, God incorporates creation-based laws because they're creatures? That's exactly what we're going to say, but not this week. So let me make some concluding observations. Adam was a sinless son of God. Luke 3.38 He was in communion with God. God made man morally upright in communion with him. He was commissioned by God to obey him for a reward. He was a representative of others. He had the law written on his heart. He had original righteousness. He was given a bride so that he could fulfill the mandate and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth And he couldn't even fill the garden. You know, our confession says, soon after their creation, they they fell. How soon after? Adam was created on day six. Seems like Eve was as well. What's the first full day would be the seventh day, which should have been supposed to be some sort of day of rest. Did they sin on the first day of 
their full 20, first full 24-hour day? It's weird to think that way, huh? They could have. Obviously, they sinned before she bore children. But he sinned. She sinned. He sinned. He fell short of the glory of God. Remember when you go to the New Testament? Christ suffers, and then he enters into glory, his resurrection. His human nature is brought to this uh, state of existence that's better than its initial created state. Adam's guilt is imputed to his seed, and pollution is imparted to all men born through ordinary generation. That which was promised to him, glory, or the reward of eternal life, could only be gained by him, a sinless son of God, who represented others, but he failed at his task. So it's not as if God says, okay, I tried Adam to be the federal head of everybody. Why don't you just be your own federal head? Do it yourself. Obey yourself to glory. That's not what happens in the scriptures. What happens in the scriptures is that God pronounces a curse upon the, uh, upon the serpent, upon the woman, upon the, the man, and couched within the curse upon the serpent is a ray of hope, a promise of mercy that ends up being the seed from which the development of redemptive history occurs. So what we need is not to be our own Adams. We need a new Adam, and that's exactly what we get in our Lord Jesus Christ. So since Adam's fall, gaining glory by obedience is impossible for sinners. Okay, We can't gain glory by our own obedience. But the law still binds us as image bearers because we're creatures. Since the law, since the fall, it condemns us all. But it's still the standard to glory. Our only hope is that God sends another. Another Adam to be ordained by God for the benefit of others. And of course, you know, this is exactly what we have in the sinless seed of the woman who ends up being the devil conquering, wrath exhausting, righteousness upholding servant of the Lord. Let me read that again. It's exactly what we have in the sinless seed of the woman The devil conquering, the Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. The wrath exhausting, it is finished. Righteousness upholding, I've come to fulfill all righteousness. Servant of the Lord, that's Isaianic language that is used in the context of the suffering servant oracles or sections in the book of Isaiah. But this one that I just described does not show up on the biblical scene until the New Testament era, right? When we read, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, 
born under the law, that he might receive, that, that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You have this larger part of the Bible has no incarnate son of God. And then when the incarnate son of God shows up on the earth's history, on the earth's, um, on the earth, then you have this shorter testament, the New Testament. And what does the New Testament do? It tells us, it, it connects the historical incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ with the Old Testament, doesn't it? Over and over and over again. Remember, I've said this. You read the book of Acts, there's this motif. They experience Pentecost, and Peter says, this is that. This is what Joel said would happen. This, what we're experiencing now in the first century, is that which the prophet said would take place. The Christ is said by Moses and the uh, prophets and the Psalms to suffer and to be raised on the third day, to suffer and to enter into his glory. So when Jesus comes on the scene, uh, he's, a law, he's made under the law. He's a law keeper for us and for our salvation. And then once our Lord leaves, the blood of the new covenant is shed, inaugurated new covenant is here, blessings of the new covenant procured by Christ were shared by the elect believers in the Old Testament, but weren't, uh, he had not uh, secured them by virtue of his incarnation, sufferings, and glory. But now he has. He goes to heaven. The apostles write the New Testament. And it's so easy for them to say what love your neighbor looks like. You know what Paul does in Romans 13, 9, when he's talking about love your neighbor? He cites three or four of the the so-called second table of the law. He cites from the Ten Commandments. You know what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 6? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother, fifth commandment, for this is the first commandment with a promise. Now, other commandments before had a threat, but this is a promise. This is the first commandment with a promise. Fifth commandment cited in the book of Ephesians to a Jew-Gentile congregation these aren't Jews under the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant had, had been fulfill, inaugurated by virtue of being fulfilled. It served its purpose. Christ had come. We don't no longer have the sacraments. He's not writing to Jews under the Mosaic Covenant. He's writing to Gentiles, and he cites the fifth commandment. And he says it's the first with a promise. The first where? In the, the first commandment in the, with a promise in the book of Ephesians? That that's kind of sounds weird. The first commandment with a promise in the New Testament? The first commandment with a promise. What, what do you think he's getting at? It's the first commandment in a series of other commandments in which it's the first with a promise. That's what he's getting at. Now, a biblically saturated mind is going to read Ephesians 6 and go, he's using the fifth commandment as it's contained in a series of other commandments in which it's the first with a promise. And the next question should be, is he assuming that the fifth commandment, at least in our heads, should be connected to other commandments in which it's the first with the promise in a series of commands? And if the answer is, well, yes, 
then it's, it's not a hard leap to say, he's picking the fifth commandment out of the series of the ten. And he's saying it has application for you guys. So the New Testament very easily and very nonchalantly and very much without apology just just dips back in off the ten stones and and recites commands here and there, sometimes to be approving of somebody's conduct and other times to be disapproving of it. But all that tells us this. Whatever function the law has, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, uh, well, let me put it this way. This side of the resurrection, cross and resurrection of Christ, we know this much. The law still has an abiding function. How do we the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments? How do we know that? Well, it's cited by the New Testament in very strategic places without apology. And then in this one place, Ephesians, the fifth commandment, is cited where it appears that Paul is is, is taking it in the context of a series of commands in which it's the first command in the series of commands with a promise. That's the ten commandments. But again, when we read the New Testament, we're dissuaded from trying to keep the law on the one hand, right? No flesh shall be justified by the works of the law. So any positive pronomian use of the law in the New Testament for Christians can't be for our justification. You want to get discouraged? Go try to gain your justification by your obedience to the law this week. It's not going to happen. But still, there's a function of the law, which we'll see later. So if it's not unto justification, this use of the law must be part of our sanctification. And if the love commands comprehend the first four and the last six, then it's the way we show our love for God. We do what he says. And when we don't do what he says, we confess it as sin. And he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our righteousness. So I don't want anybody to get confused here. Wow, the pastor just said nothing's changed. Jesus obeyed the law for me, but now i got to obey it for him, for him in order that I might get justified. No, it's a way we show our thankfulness. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Remember the three G's of the old catechism. Guilt, we're sinful and miserable. Grace, God saves us in Christ. Gratitude, what do I do for Christ? Not to gain salvation, but to show forth my gratefulness. Well, I, I do what he says. And I, so I got the, I got to do it because he said to do it. But I get to do it to show my gratefulness and thankfulness. And when I do it wrongly, Lord, it's me again. Please forgive me. And if you do it one too many times, you're going to hear a voice from heaven says, that's enough. The blood of Jesus just ran out for you. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, but it just went empty because you sinned one too many times. And we don't get that view of God. Now, you know what happens. Some people go, oh, so, so the more sin I do, the more grace I get. May it never be. You know, Romans 6, Paul says that. Don't use the freedom and the liberty that we have in Christ as a license for our sin. Use it as liberty to show forth love by obeying his commands. Well, let's pray.
We thank you, Lord, for your word. And there's, it's just so deep and so broad. There's so many uh, things to tie together, so many uh, issues to cover. But we trust that you would help us to know the, the biggest things and the most important things, who you are, who we are, who we aren't, who Christ is, and what we are to do to be saved and what we are to do to show our thankfulness. We want to now take the supper and treat it as a holy thing. This is why throughout the history of the church, some have called it holy communion. This um, institution by the Lord Jesus, this ordinance, this lordly ordinance coming from the Lord himself through the apostles to the churches and down to us because we have the scriptures. Draw near to us. Bless it. Our hearts, our souls, our minds. We're weak and feeble. We're not many. We're not strong. We're not mighty. But we are in Christ. And this is the main thing. Bless the supper now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.